Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future, this episode of the podcast is supported by Doing the Damage, the only DJ pool focused exclusively on house and dance music. Supplying the best remixes, bootlegs, mashups and exclusive promos from their global network of DJs, producers and labels. Check it out now at doingthedamage.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast, including James Hype, PBH, Mark McCabe, and many more on iTunes, Spotify, and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talk to Sean Lever about his 25-year to date career in music. Beginning in the 90s and spanning some epic moments, including presenting an MTV show, producing radio shows on the Galaxy FM network, the process of taking his pirate radio station legal, and the inception of Trick Babies and Boy Raver, two of his most successful artist aliases. Sean, like myself, loves playing records to people, and as a DJ, it really can't be underestimated how important this inbuilt trait is, especially if you want to last as long in the industry as Sean has, and to be as successful as he has been. Stay tuned for an engaging and educational look back at the last 25 years of Sean's career, from the birth of Acid House, through the explosion of the superstar DJ, right to the present day. Let's get into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are. Okay, so we are live. I'm here with Sean Lever in ashton Underline. Mm-hmm. It's a really nice day. Uh, I'm so excited. I've never met Sean before. Um We're going to dive straight in the way that we always start the podcast. We're going to take it right back to the start. And I'm going to ask you, what do you remember as being the first exposure to any music? Like, where do you just remember? Is it parents? Is it the car? Is it like, is it just where do you remember first being exposed to any kind of music? It's funny, actually, like when I go back to music, I mean, music never meant anything to me growing up. Um, it was um, it was all football. Football okay. was 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 my thing, and you know, like I said, I'm, I'm City or United or Oldham, Tottenham, Tottenham. Um, <laughs> Tottenham. Although I ended up working for Oldham Athletic, which um, is another story. We'll get onto Paul scores later. Uh, yeah, but well, don't even go there. But I mean, Oldham Athletic. Uh, I grew up behind Oldham Athletic's training ground, um, and um, like I said we, we, with Oldham. I eventually worked and ended up working for their match day radio service okay. and my my job really I'm, I did a lot of interviews and things like that but my my main job was reading out the full time scores okay so with that, int- with that what's you what you call it intonation so it's like Stevenage Borough one one <laughs> Carl United Rush, yeah Rushton nil. Diamonds nil <laughs> Oldham Athletic nil Notts County eight. It, 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 it was very much um, like a, it was that kind of thing. So, you know do, what I mean? so, so do you remember hearing? So, was, do you remember hearing music? Because obviously, music gets played at the football, right? At like half time and before the game. I tell you what, the, right? I was mascot for Oldham Athletic um, before I even was interested in music. Okay. And like, my dad has kept the video, and the first piece of music, the the, the one thing that that is there is like me going on the pitch. Okay. And the track that he's playing is. Um, Oh, they're an Australian band. Uh, mental as anything, live it up. 
wow. was playing when I came out. Okay. And that's that, that's the first piece of music that actually meant anything to me, I okay. think. Okay, so because of the emotional attachment to that time of being a Yeah, a I just... I just um, and, and like I said, music meant... That, there, there was a few songs out around the same time. John Farnham, You're the Voice, yeah. uh, was, was something as well uh, around the same time. Uh, even before that, though, musically, like the, the the one piece of music that really, really stands out to me that that meant anything, it's down to sports as well, is Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Two Tribes, the instrumental, yeah. which I was into American football as well, yeah, and that too. was a minority sport. That was like literally Channel Four Channel at eleven four, o'clock at yeah. night. We used to tape it, and like they'd do the rundown, and I was I, I was a fan of the San who's, Francisco. Who's... 49ers. 49ers. Okay. Um, do you still follow and, it? Do you still watch NFL? Nah, not not at all. But Joe Joe Montana was the quarterback, yeah. and you know, like and, and like it was the, the the glory day for the 49ers. They they just beaten the uh, the Miami Dolphins in the Super Bowl, and but they, they used to do this rundown, and like two tribes was the music in the background when okay. they ran down all the action. Okay. Um, and it was the instrumental, um, and it's great. It's a great piece of sports music. Two tribes go to war. Because I um, would say I have a similar piece of affection for. The Lightning Seeds, Life Pure. of Riley. No, Life of oh, Riley. Oh, Life of Riley. Which was the backing, which the is, instrumental was the backing music to the goal of the month yep. on Match of the Day. That's the one. So, funny enough, I guess I have a, I have a similar kind of bit of God, I'll tell you what, I'll never forget a story, like a football-related story. There, there, was, there was a girl, I won't name her, but there was a girl I went to university with. And um, again, I can't name her. She had a minor radio career, but she was going out with a, with a Liverpool footballer. And, you know, success had kind of got to her head a little bit because, okay. because of it all. And I found out this story that basically she tried to get Ian Brody thrown out of the VIP can the box. Liverpool, can you name the Liverpool footballer who she had a relationship with? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> Danny Murphy. Sorry. Um, <laughs> it's a He's bad chop I've got today. Danny yeah. Murphy. Any, anyway, she tried to... She she seen Ian Brody come in this VIP box. Okay. Uh, Amprey, because obviously he's a big Liverpool fan, isn't yeah, he? Yeah. Ian Brody. She sent him and, and got like, get the get him out of the fuck of this box. Uh, and um, what? and somebody turned around and said, "That's Ian Brody from the Lightning Seeds," and it shut her right up. Right. Um, I, I won't. I won't <laughs> three minute, three minute gems that uh, that mm. album. Anyway, right. Anyway, I, I can tell this podcast where it's going to head. So I'm going to <laughs> I'm gonna have to keep you. I'm going to have to keep you in check. So interesting that that. that that, that sport, in a way, was the first introduction to music. Were your parents particularly like? Did you grow up in a in a in a household full of music? Did your parents were they particularly musical in any way? My my dad could play a guitar. Okay, and that was it. Um, did he play it I, a lot, or did, was it just a skill he? Possessed? No, it was just skill he had. Right. And, so it wasn't but, that you were sat around on a Friday night. The, the interesting was... thing was though, as I grew into music, my dad got more into music. Okay. My dad just could play a guitar. Okay, um, and he's he, one of those talented people who can just pick things up by yeah. ear and stuff. Yeah, right. uh, but my, my dad was into Thin Lizzy, and okay. but he was into a lot of soul, like Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield, and stuff. But we never really played music in the house. It okay. was, it was, you know. It just wasn't a, a music thing. I, I, I don't know where. Well, I know exactly where music came from, but it, it, it's music was was just. Ter- it was even. Ter- so, it wasn't. So, it was secondary. It was yeah, tertiary. So, so you're banging at the spot, and you are you know aware of music, but it's not the great the, the main thing. Another question I always really like to ask is, and, and rack your brains for this one is like, when when did you become aware of? A DJ, like the fact of the fact that someone, it was someone's job or role to 
play music for other people? I know it sounds like a, on the face of it, in this day and age, it sounds like a silly question. Yeah. But going back a little bit, were you aware of a radio DJ? Were you, had you been taken to a function where you saw a DJ, you know, in a, in a wedding or a birthday? Had you been to see a band and there was a DJ? When can you remember the first time that you were just aware that someone was, was playing music? Two points here. Firstly, Roller City in Rochdale, which was a, was a roller rink, yeah. um, was the first time I heard music non-stop. So that was a roller you know, where, disco. Where there weren't any changes, but I didn't try to examine yeah. why the music You were just change. aware that that was going on. Just... Was there a DJ or was it just being yeah. played through the speakers? Well, there was a DJ. That's so cool. But, but I, ne- I, never, I never thought, to check oh, actually, out. some you know, there's somebody conducting these changes. It's yeah. just a guy in, in a corner. Um, and then I, I I think that was the first time. How cool is that, though? I mean, even just thinking about, like, I used to go to Royal Discos. And, like, all you used to do was go round and round in circles. Yes. And, and someone was playing music. I'll never, I'll never forget breaking my wrist in Roller City. Because you see this fucking thing called Chariots. And like the, the, the guy would get on the mic and say, right, um, and, and this is the move now. And Chariots. And Chariots was like the dangerous thing. It was like where everybody got together like in, in like linked the, the, arms. Yeah. And if you couldn't link oh, arms quick enough, you'd just get knocked over onto the floor. I ended up breaking my wrist in Roller City. Um, fuckers. Um, <laughs> And, and and that that was it. But Roller City, I believe Stu Allen was a DJ at Roller okay. City. It could have even been Stu Allen's okay. fault um, that I broke my wrist. Yes. But anyway, um, got, Stu Allen's like a later part of my life. But it, it's like I said with, with that. But the first time I actually be, became aware of mixing yeah. was a compilation series called Mega Bass. Okay. Now Mega Bass, remember Jive Bunny? Yeah. Jive Bunny was an offshoot of Megabase, a master mix, and yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, what they did is they, they brought out the first ever legal mega mixes. Okay. Now, one thing I will say is the tightness of those mixes. And I mean, even today, if you look at the tightness of their mixes, they're, they're, as re- they're equally more relevant, so far ahead of their time to what we're doing now, than anything. And just, just to clear some stuff up, A, for me personally, and B, for everyone listening... When we're talking about, because I think about Jive Bunny, and, but when, when, when you're saying a mega mix, yeah. are you, in fact, I'll let you explain it, just, just break down what you mean by like a mega mix. Imagine taking 20 tracks and playing them in 12 minutes. So kind of like a, 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 a mini mix for Annie Mac. Yeah, but over a bit but of a o- o- over t- maybe like twelve minutes and like, like I mean the the mini mixes for Annie Mac are, are, are fantastic. Yeah. Um, some of the actually some of the mini mixes for Annie, Annie Mac just I listen to them I think how the fucking hell have you wasted that opportunity? But um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm not wrong. I'm, I know I'm not wrong. But like I said, and some of them are absolutely next level, and some of them you know they paid somebody to do them. Yeah. You know what I mean for them. But like I said, you get to that level of mini mix and you think. Absolute waste. Yeah. Um, but like the the mega mixes were basically like um, take the best parts of the track, yeah. mash them together as well. Probably the, the first time we really saw the mashups. And... Would they have had? I mean, bear in mind how much more difficult it would have been doing it then than it would be doing it now with Ableton. But just leaving aside the sort of the doors and the and the um, technology side of it for a second, when these guys were doing the mega mixes. Mm. Do you think they would have had the individual stems for all the tracks that they were making? No, mixing? not at all. They just what, had the flat tracks. What, flat tracks, and what they would have had to do as well is take Revox, take reel-to-reel tape machines, 
they would have been there with China graph pencils and razor blades yeah. chopping them all together Jesus um, and with techniques just pitching them up at the right speed and I know because I ended up doing this myself and you know like when I got my first task cam I was doing exactly so, the same so, thing so let's take it back to they called Megabase. Megabase, yeah. So, where did you find Megabase? Did someone give you one? Did you buy it? Did you like? Because you, you think back, it was advertised on TV. Right, okay. So. Uh, and and you know Megabase, by the way, but for anyone who doesn't know, it's Tidy Tracks. It's, right. Okay. It's um, Amadeus and what's, what's the other guy? Um, I just know him as Darren Ash and Andy Pickles. Yeah. Um, Andy Pickles, yeah. But, so I know Andy's little brother. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, but basically, like, so it's a you know eventually went on to become Tidy Tracks wow. and Megabase was a, a massive thing for me and that, that was the first time we heard actual mixtapes yeah um, and you would buy them on cassette tapes from you'd buy them in Woolworths Woolworth? WH Smith's oh, okay. HMV yeah. they, they, they're all there TV advertised literally like um, 50 of the latest tracks mixed together and interesting though because super you're sort of aware that, that these are being compiled by DJs yeah okay they're being compiled really by uh, it was Telstar. Yeah, that did that, and Telstar could clear quite a lot of stuff. Clear the big samples. Yeah, yeah. So okay, and then so we've we've we've, we've had the the wrist breaking roller dab derby or roller roller disco. Obviously, you said that you were aware that the music was there, but you weren't really aware that 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 was going on. Obviously, we've touched on the mega bass. When was the first time that you kind of saw a DJ mixing using equipment? And took notice. Like, can you remember that? Probably the Hitman and her. Yeah. Okay. And that was being filmed in across the the entire northwest. Yeah. Um, and again, like I said, it it, it was um, one one thing, and, and I'll credit my parents massively for this. Um, I mean, my my parents were big clubbers. Um, you know, they didn't necessarily go to all the big clubs, but I mean, they they would go to wherever. And break down for anyone who's listening who doesn't know. Break down what. The Hitman and Her was. The Hitman and Her was Pete Waterman. Yeah, of Stock Aitken. Of Stock Aitken and Waterman. I mean, Pete Waterman, um, plenty of people have got opinions of Pete. Who was the blonde haired woman that I'm thinking of? Michaela Strachan. Michaela Strachan. From the Really Wild Club uh, and an excellent conservationist. So it's a TV show. Yep. And it's broadcast late at night. About. Three in the morning. On it wasn't, it wasn't actually live, though, was it? It was. It what, was filmed what, one week and then. Broadcast. Yeah, and then they put it out. Although what they used to do, and I think they could get away with lying quite well. Um, you know, years and years and years. Ago. They were filming the previous Instagram, week, yeah. and then they would put it out at two till four <coughs> in the morning. And the Hitman and Her was a great place to actually find and hear uh, and see. DJs, clubs, yeah. see what was going on. You so see, you were watching this. You weren't going to the clubs while it was being filmed. I probably would have been about. 12, 13 so, years so you're old. watching this. So there's no way I was going to get yes. into a nightclub. So, so you're watching but it. my parents would go to them okay. uh, while, while they were still together. And, and like they, they'd uh, sort of leave me on my own or they'd leave me with a babysitter or whatever. And it was kind of like the incentive, like, well, well we're going to go out tonight. We'll, we'll um, go, go to bed early. We'll wake you up for the Hitman and her. And they, they'd let me watch them. Amazing. Or they tape it or, you know, whatever. It, it worked. But they knew my passion for dance music. They, they, they knew it was my thing. Um, and they so, so the Hitman and Her sort of showed they, it was just filmed in like 
what we would call today like Ritzy's like commercial nightclubs yeah, like, across liquid, the northwest. You know, liquid and yeah. envy kind of places. Yeah. You know, nothing. But there were more. There were more in that time. Well, it, they would have been more independently owned. Like there wouldn't have been a Delta or a, a, a Luminar owning sixty clubs, and there would have been yeah. sort of clubs owned yeah, they, by well, one guy in, well, in Rochdale. We're, and we're one talking. Guy we're talking in... before the era that Luminar started to buy clubs out. Yeah. Um, you know, like that, and I mean places. I mean, you know, per, perfect example is uh, the Ritzy in Berry, which eventually became Solviva, okay. which was a Luminar. Venue, yeah, um, which is no longer there now, yeah. which I played for a long time. I've had a great relationship with Solvira. I love playing in Berry, um, but you know it's um, you know that, that that's the kind of thing. I mean, clubbing was was massively a difference in, oh, in yeah, 1990. Yeah. I mean, for God's sake, you couldn't even get in without a suit and tie in 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 the you know early nineties, or a pole like a black polo neck jumper instead of a shirt. And so, tie. You're watching, so you're watching Hitman and Her, which is amazing, by the way. I love this. <laughs> What's the next? Like, are you still? Is music becoming equal with sport? Is sports still number one? Sports is, gone. Like, so sports, sports already sports gone. gone. Sport, sport is like showing your shit at football. You know what I mean? You, you've no chance, mate. And and that 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 that's the that's so music. Music's now overtaken. Yeah. So you, you you're twelve, thirteen, maybe even fourteen. Watching the Hitman and Her, understanding that you like you know you're loving this, you're getting your mega bass things, you're, you're mm-hmm. learning more. What's the next step? Are you trying to then, at this point, are you even thinking about getting equipment and buying records? Or are you like, what, how does, how I, does I, it sort of progress from sitting at two in the morning watching Hitman and Her? Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, let's go to 1989. I'm already starting to build a massive record collection. Okay, so you Seven inch singles. Yeah. I'm starting to build this massive record from collection. Woolworths. Yeah. Woolworths HMV. I used to I used to be really really good at stretching. An older market, to be honest, was 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 a massive place. Yeah. But I'm 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 getting my two pound pocket money. And I'm stretching it and stretching it and stretching it. As many records as I can get, I'm stretching it. You know, as yeah. much as I can. Golden Disc in Oldham was another place you should be able to get um, three seven inch singles for for a pound. Uh, the the what sort, sort of like, stuff are you buying? I'm, buy, I'm, I'm only buying house music. So you're only but buying house music. The thing with house music, when it came out on a seven inch single, nobody wanted to buy house music on a seven. So they'd usually end up in like the, the, the sad bit, what, what you call the sad the bins, bins or the, whatever, like the yeah. reduced bins. Yeah. So I was buying house music, stuff on Champion Records, loads yeah. of everything. And I mean, as well, you've got to look at the corruption of the record industry in the 80s. Like that they, they give record shops, you know, maybe, you know, like X amount of copies for free to push an artist and they do it in return for another artist so yeah. you know like it didn't mean anything if they got rid of a record for 35 pence that's 35 pence, pence profit, profit. Um, and like the corruption in, in the actual vinyl sales industry in the 80s so was, did you did you and I'm super interested in stuff like this did you blag your parents to buy you a record player or were you buying vinyl just not even having somewhere or did they have one that you could use theirs they bought me a midi hi-fi I think on, on like me uh, might have been like me 11th or 12th birthday yeah um, the interesting thing here about the MIDI Hi-Fi they bought me, on, um, I think it was my 12th birthday, they bought me a CD player. And the, there's something, and it's on a lot of old, and, and people my age will tell you this, um, there's, on, on a lot of MIDI Hi-Fis, they had this little switch where if you jammed it in the middle, you could play vinyl and auxiliary at the same time. Now, I had a Hinari Okay. Uh, MIDI Hi-Fi. Yeah. And I had an external CD player that wired in. Okay. Now, what I could do is I learned to jam it in the middle and I could play vinyl and CD at the same time. And that is where I started to learn to DJ. I used to manually guide the record into the CD. Yeah. 
Um, so when I finally got turntables, I, you were already. You were it was already there. I, I knew. I knew exactly what to do. And can you remember what sort of age you were when you got turntables? I mean, okay. Well, there's another question I always like to ask at this point: is you're watching Hitman and Her, you're getting, you're buying vinyl. Yeah. Have you got? Have you got a friend like of a similar age or older or whatever that you're, that you're friends with that's that's got turntables? Is there a mate who's into buying records? Is it you doing this with anyone else, or is this all on your own? Oh, I mean, I've always been on my own. Um, okay. Apart from like, I, I, one of my like I said, the, my best mate at school was was very very similar, uh, and it, it's something that saddens me all, over the years. And it's it, it's something that actually is a little bit of a, a re, regret of mine. It's something I can't undo. Which is my my best mate at school is called Stenny, um, and me and him got to a point where, like I said, we 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 got through. We hated each other to start with, okay. and then we, we started to really get to know each other. We were into the same music, and we bought the same records. We bought everything. We came through everything. We, we went into pirate radio in the mid-90s, carried right the way through. And um, right to 2004, um, I had gone on and done something else with, with the, the act Trip Babies, and Stanny was with us, and Stanny had done a few things that, you can't undo and we had to kick him out and a week later we signed a major record deal okay. and it's and we, we've never spoken since um, so, and we'll get on to that later but that was then you Stenny and Sai were at yeah we're, point, we're, we're at one point trick babies okay um but me and Stenny literally lived in each other's pockets for a long long time uh and we, we were um you know we we, we were to, and to to be honest with you there's nobody since in, in life that I collect with that I have to justify myself to yeah. that that you know you know literally he, he was my best mate at school um, and like I said we, we, we were DJ partners for a long long time um, it's funny I mean the music industry in, in, the, in the form that we're involved in it I think can gain you some friends for life yeah it can unfortunately sometimes lead to you falling out with someone for mm. life yeah and you know I've started like managing some 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 kids like trying to help some younger people in the industry and one thing I say to them yeah. is the thing about DJing is it, it, it often is a, a solo sport but it's sometimes better played as a team and and you know as, as yeah. a DJ I think unless you're in a duo or whatever you tend to spend a lot of time on your own traveling to gigs mm. doing gigs coming home from gigs all the rest of it but if you can in some small way be part of a, a family or a team mm. it does help you know mental health wise it does help yeah. you know you know and you know and we'll come on to it as far as the trick babies happened and, and other things mm. sometimes just being part of a little collective or a group or yeah. a family can help you um, I, I, I've been part of little collectives and, and bits and pieces you know and people around me I've, I've got so much so many people I need to thank so much you know for support they've shown but in reality Cutting people out of your life is one of the hardest, pe- hardest things you can ever do. Um, it'll keep you awake at night, yeah. you know, 10, 15 years on. But, you know, at some point you have to realise that you, you are really on your own. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, you're, and, you've only, and ultimately your decisions only ever really affect, you know, yourself at the end of the day. Yeah. They weren't all said and done. So let's, you've got this, you're building up a huge record selection. Are you aware at this point, like... Because I'm, you're a little bit before me, like in sort of time wise. Yeah. So, are you aware at this point, like what's going on on sort of like you meant you touched on pirate radio? What's going on on radio at the minute? Are the, is radio is radio one the dance thing happening? Like is Pete Tong and Ben Rampion on it? Yeah. Pete, is, Pete Tong comes along in '92, but I mean realistically, the only place there's only two places you can hear dance music. Um, 
The first place was Bruno Brooks on Radio 1. Yeah. Um, on a Wednesday night. Which he, on, and he which, doesn't get credited for that. No, right? Absolutely not. And I think Bruno <laughs> Brooks is sadly massively underrated. Uh, even though he had little interest. I mean, Bruno Brooks was, you know, he used to go shopping for records around London and he would actually come in and do his Wednesday night show and he would do something called the Dance Chart. It was the first dance chart we really had, really, that, that was playing house music. Yeah, I know you can trace it back to people like Tony Prince from DMC, yeah. who did it on Radio Luxembourg, but the actual dance chart, the 12-inch single Bruno chart, Brooks. Bruno Brooks used to batter house music, and wow. there was nobody else actually doing it. And ironically, the whole changes that came around Radio 1, uh, Bruno Brooks ended up being one of the casualties, and I felt very sorry for Bruno Brooks. Um, I think status, you know, being a fan of status quo was his undoing. Uh, but like, and there, there was that. Um, Stu Allen. So talk more about Stu Allen. I'll tell you what, Stu Allen. Um, and I mean, realistically, you need to interview Stu Allen if, okay. if, if, if he's not on your list. But Stu Allen is somebody that that literally will blow your mind. Okay. Um, and I'm not going to say too much about Stu Allen because I think he should be on your interview list. Okay. Yeah. But. Stu Allen, imagine, um, imagine like reading the copy of the Sun, and um, oh, I've never read the Sun by the way. Uh, I certainly, <laughs> I, I certainly, I love that you had to point that out. I, I, I certainly wouldn't do anyway. Um, but um, Justice for ninety six. But I mean, like, I, I certainly would never read the Sun now. But um, basically, I imagine the Sun telling the whole world that this is a, a devilistic cult. And you mean dance music? Well, Acid House, just yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. Imagine the sun telling the world this is a devilish cult. Yeah. And the whole world being so influenced and saying... You sure it wasn't the Daily Mail? Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, look, <laughs> the mail, the mail's so far behind, it'll probably tell you now. Um, yeah. The Express will tell you in 10 years. But can you imagine, like, being, be, you know, being in, 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 in a time... Coming into house music where it was so taboo that, yeah. like, oh, your, your son's into house music. He, he's a wrong in him. Yeah. You know what I mean? And imagine being in, in, into that kind of thing. Um, you know, and, and trying to find house music anywhere. And Stu Allen, what he'd done is he, 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 he was a, I, I think, as far as I know, he was a senior radio producer, managed to blag his way into a show presenting soul, built it up. The house music thing changed. There was places like Legends in Warrington, the Hacienda. It was all going on. Yeah. And Stu Allen ended up being that voice. Um, on what the, station? The, uh, Key 103 in Manchester, which is probably the equivalent in uh, the northeast of Metro. Yeah, I mean, I'm aware of yeah. it. I've seen it when I've been driving the yeah. Manchester and stuff. So, yeah. But, the, what, the, the most listened to commercial radio station yeah. at the time. Key 103. And it, yeah. it's tragic, by the way, that Key 103 has been replaced by the hits, um, which is... I, no, why would you throw away that, that kind of branding? Just why would you do it? Well, I remember driving into Manchester years ago and seeing the branding all yeah. over the you know the bridges. And everything why why would you do that? So he, he brought... It's like so knocking down the Eiffel Tower and replacing it with a tower block. Why, why would you do it? He, he might try. But So he's <laughs> playing house music that isn't really being heard too much it's, on commercial radio just, station in Manchester. You, the, 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 the magnitude of Stu Allen and what he did. People used to, like, people used to bloody drive to places like Oldham Edge and listen to it, like, like, there in cars. 
because you know they couldn't maybe pick it up in Glossop or you know yeah. all that kind of places. People used to meet in communities just to listen to a radio show. Imagine the magnitude of that. Yeah, that that is just. I mean, I've, I've done my many years on the radio. I couldn't imagine that. Yeah, I couldn't imagine being at that stage. That's that's like the the probably like the last superstar DJ in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, Stu Allen and what what he done. It just broke so many great music, and Stu, Stu certainly was not a great DJ in those eras. He, he, he's mixing is flawless now, an incredibly great DJ now. Um, but I mean, Stu's mixing, he, he, he could barely mix a fruitcake, and I think Stu would be the first to admit that, yeah. you know, in, in, in those days. Um, but I think if you listen back to a lot of early houses, I mean, you listen back to even, you know, I'm not being disrespectful to anyone here, but I, I've listened back to old Larry Levan tapes and stuff like that. Oh, I, I mean, you know, yeah. They, and it's, I'm, not, I'm not making, I'm not casting dispersions. What I'm saying is, you listen back, yeah. you're so used to now hearing people flawlessly mixing in yeah. key, you know, in time. It wasn't important it, then. It's no. it all about <laughs> just mixing, you know, just, just going from one track to the right track at the right time. Yeah. Um, actually, nothing's changed. Um, no, I agree. But we'll, we'll get <laughs> but, back. <into> it. <laughs> so, 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 where, when do you, when do you, so when do you get two turntables and a mixer? What sort of age are we talking about? The first turntables and a mixer I actually bought um, was after I'd done my first gig. All right, um, all right then. So let's park that for a second. Let's talk about the first gig. How did you get your first DJ gig? Um, I just. I was in Southside in Shaw. Uh, I, I, I was working at. Um, I left school, and when when you leave school and you you're working out what you want to do. We're talking about, six, at, about sixteen now. Are we? Uh, we, yeah, I was sixteen going into seventeen. Yeah. And uh, I was working at a place called JD Williams, okay. which is um, like a clothing catalogue place. Just and my my job all day was to um, take parcels and to throw them on a conveyor belt, and okay. that that was my job. Um, you know, we'd end the day. We go to a, a place called um, I can't remember what it's called, what it was called then, but I know it's still now called Coolers. Okay. In in Shaw, uh, High Crompton, uh, near where I went to school, and um, they were looking for um, a Saturday night jock. Okay. Oh, is it? Sorry, I'm not aware. So, is it a bar? Is it a club? Is it a? Basically, where I started. Below it is, is a bar called Coolers, and you go down. It's pound a pint, yeah. and you go there after work. You know, you have your pint of Carlin or Foster's or whatever, and then you go get the bus home or whatever. And I, they, they needed a jock, and I, I just said, I'll you do had it. the records? I'll do it. Got the records, I'll do it. Did you get to your first gig? I got about 30 quid. That's still a tick. Yeah. <laughs> still I got about 30 quid for my first gig. I, th- I think it might have even been less because he deducted the bar bill. Um, <laughs> textbook. Um, and uh, do you know the funny thing is I only stopped drinking DJ in about 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, but I, I used to go crazy. Like my bar bill was, you know, often sometimes more than half of my fee. Um, even at like bedroom, especially, got ridiculous. It was, um, and I was doing outrageous things there. But like you know, I, I got that, and um, I played there. It didn't really work out. Did you so how did you did you get a sort of Saturday night residency, or did you just do? I I, I done I done like a handful of Saturday nights, okay, uh, and it didn't really work. Um, but you know, that's your start. Yeah, yeah. You know. So and then did you get decks after that? I got decks at me. I think it was probably about. And we talk when we're saying decks here. We're talking like turntables. Was, was yeah. Was the, was the first well, gig on twelve tens on techniques? Before, or was well, it on... before that, what I had was um, 
a turntable I bought from Haywood Market. Well, my okay. dad bought it me. And it was a 1970s Goodman's yeah. um, very speed turntable. And I had a Tascam Porter 7, um, sorry, Porter 5, which was a, a four-track recorder, you know, which is where you can multi-track four channels and you can record like a part of the tape. Yeah. And then you can record another part of the tape and yeah. you can mix them all back together. So what I started doing was constructing mixes with this this turntable. Okay. Like I'd lay down one track, yeah, and, and then, then I'd pitch it all up, and then yeah. we'd put these mixes together, um, like me and Stenny. And we'd, we'd do them all. We'd do these really, really great mixes. That's how I've actually... I'd already learned. I'd already done little bits in youth clubs and, and stuff, but they were always just very speed... Yeah. Not not even very speed turntables, like your twin units. Yeah. and You know, where, where you, you used to... like the. The the one that I remember at Shaw Youth Club, you didn't even there wasn't a mixer. There was like a like a left and right switch, yep. and it stopped the left deck and just play the right. the right. Deck. And and it you know it was bloody horrible. Um, you know the Haywood Youth Club one, like you had a, a you had pitch control. It was like a little wheel. Yeah. Um, that that the control. They're all twin units that have been donated by ex DJs or you know like maybe, maybe they had the funding fifteen years ago to buy them and and you know. Would, would never replace them yeah um but yeah I, I went into i went to south side um kind of didn't really work uh and then from there i went to a place called dino's in Oldham, which is where i first met aaron meller <laughs> we'll come back to aaron meller <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got a question because at this stage right you obviously you obviously love music right hmm. you're collecting music you are you know mucking about with decks mucking about with stuff but in your mind did, were you thinking this is going to be what I do with my life or in your mind at that time were you going this is what I'm doing as like a hobby but I'm going to need to do something else on a day to day basis to earn money or was it focused which can you remember how you were thinking or I, I remember going and thinking like you know even like well before I'd even played in a club I remember going in and thinking I've got to make this some way I've, I've got to do this somehow because I ain't got a fucking prayer of doing anything else and and <laughs> Because, as it happens, I've ended up being quite a good SEN teacher. But I mean, that that's another story. Um, but I'm thinking, I ain't got a fucking prayer of doing anything else. I'm I'm not academically gifted. I'm not, you know, I, I ain't got a, I ain't got a, I ain't got a clue. Um, and going in, just just coming in, thinking I'm gonna make it somehow. I'll do it. You know what I mean? I'm I'm, I'm an ugly cunt in a fucking industry full of like Jeremy Ealy's and. You know, and, and like everybody wants to be stylish. Also, John please women though. So yeah, but, well, I know, I know, I know. But you know, re- realistically, it was all about the glamour. It was all you know, I was coming yeah. into a glamour era yeah. with somebody that, that just had no interest in their appearance. Uh, no, you know, I just wanted to play records, and yeah. you know, it was really, really different. I, I mean, I looked up to people like Terry Farley, yeah. uh, who junior boys, uh, yeah. Yeah. People like Terry Farley that um, you know, like you know, the face that only a mother could love. You know what I mean? And and you know, I knew if people like that could make it, I could make it. Yeah. So I just carried on pecking and pecking and pecking. And it took me a long, long time to actually get into somewhere. And so you said, you, so where did you meet Aaron? I'm at Aaron in a, a club called Dino's. Okay. In Oldham, okay. which uh, originally was a Bernie Inn. Okay. And it was a, a night called Subculture. Yeah. Now Aaron had already had a night called Ambition. Okay. Which um, was you know started in, this, up, in that venue. Uh, it was in yeah, it was in that venue originally. It ended up being at a club round the corner, which okay. was the form. But I take it, ambition was a, an indie night. Uh, yeah, somehow. Yeah, 
Uh, Aaron and uh, Bowie, I don't know if Bowie's still on, on the scene or whatever, but Aaron and Bowie used to do the main room. Um, and Aaron would play all his indie stuff, he's into his charlatans and that kind of stuff. And then, you know, like, Bowie would come in and do all like Rage Against the Machine and, okay, more rocky and that kind of stuff. And I'd be in the back room of Dino's playing like acid techno or just what, whatever I could get away with. Yeah. And there was Jeff as well, Jeff Granger, who, and, and, you know, I, I kind of became a little bit part of that scene. Okay. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we sort of tried to grow a bit more of an avant garde Oldham scene. Um, because we knew we'd seen what was going on with Brighton uh, and, and seeing that kind of scene going on with Brighton and thinking, do you, do you know what, Oldham's bigger than Brighton. We can actually create something. Okay. So, you know, we, we, we did. We tried to start a bit of a movement, really. Um, you know, I, like Aaron, I, I, I knew Aaron as Matt, by the way. Matt, yeah, yeah, Matt, no, yeah. Uh, I, I knew Aaron as Matt. And Aaron, for, Aaron, for anyone who's listening, is a nightclub empresario at this stage. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you met him at the beginning of his career yeah. he now currently owns digital where i've obviously been resident for a long time but he owns he would like to tell you that he owns um nightclubs festivals the coolest nightclubs festivals and bars across the world that's just a, yeah. a, a, a just to make sure that if he does listen which is unlikely <laughs> that he will i will still remain in his, his good books hopefully but you met him yeah. very much at the beginning i, I met him very much at the start and yeah. do, do you know what? i used to as well i came in originally as a clubber i used to love watching matt um as a jock, I used to be on his dance floor, buddy, all the time, and it, it was fantastic um, to, to to watch him actually do what he was doing. It, it's actually incredible to watch him do what he's actually done. Um, yeah, he's going out do a lot of stuff. So at this point, you are, are you DJing quite a lot. Are you DJing in, in lots of lots of bands? I'm, str- I'm it, scrapping it, for work. Right, okay. I'm scrapping. Uh, I'm getting little bits here and there, but I'm scrapping. And, and and if it's a, I mean a completely different era, and, and even you know a few years before me, is are the old jocks who aren't letting you in? Is there just not a lot of gigs going? What like can you remember what it was like at that time? It was all about being the face, okay, really. And like I said again, one one of the biggest hindrances I think I've all I've had in my career is I'm not I don't fit the glamorous image. I'm not a glamorous person. Okay, I'm not interested in glamour. I think it's probably added to the longevity that that, that I've had a, as well to to. You know, I personally think that anyway. Yeah, well, I mean, um, you could liken it with, you know, even that Carl Cox has never really been about the glamour. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You know, he's, he's grown from the rave scene and still you just catch him wearing a T-shirt. And, yeah. You know, he's, not, he's not about that kind of thing. But I, I, I came into this era, really, where you needed to look like Jeremy Ely. You need to have that style. You need to have, you need to bring people with you. And, and so it was very, very difficult to start with. Okay. Hmm. So then where... Where where's the next step then? So so you're scrapping around. You are getting gigs. You, you've got decks. You've got a vast record collection. You've got a love and knowledge of early, but at the time current acid house. What's what's next? What's like what 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 do you remember as being the next break or what's the next thing that really gave you hope or what what was next in your career? It took me a while. Um, again, I, I I had loads of bits of gigs here and there or whatever little like bloody. Venues where angels feel to shred and and turning up with with your own decks and and playing and stuff, but what I wanted to do is I moved into two areas. One was radio, okay. The other was um, production, okay. And I already done a, a lot of production anyway. I trained at Square One Recording Studios in in Berry. Okay. Um, you know, I was doing a a, a BA. Sorry, I was doing a a, a BTEC National Diploma in Audio Engineering at okay. the time. So I was starting to learn my trade and doing do what I was doing. But I'd already sort of learned my trade there. So I started to make music, started building up 
uh, a studio. Okay. And I started some. I, I made like a, a pretty big house record. Okay. Called Got to Know, which is um, which is credited to Dahlia, which has a massive Run DMC sample in it. Okay. Which we we got to a point where Manifesto and Positiva wanted it. Okay. And then Jason fucking Nevins goes and samples Run DMC. It's like that. Yeah, it is like that, unfortunately. <laughs> um, and then Run DMC, so, right, yeah. Um, we'll give it to Mr. We, we want 90% publishing. Like, fuck off. Crazy. Um, and, and there's nothing you can do when you're in that position. I made Got to Know in 96. And, you know... And it's, it's, so, so, for, 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 um, for me, but also people listening now, when you say you made a record in the 90s, right, what did you make a record on I mean like physically what what equipment we, no we, we, we like we're going back to the day we're going back to the days where um, you didn't have to wipe something you know you, you could go in a label with a dat right okay and and they would say oh and like I said I, like Manifesto Positiva both had the dats both tried to clear it they were both there ready with offers oh no I mean I mean what equipment were you making music oh on? right what okay you, what was in your studio I was using a crack copy of Cubase okay on, like, um, what, on, on like an Atari a... ST 1040 yeah um, with a chain boss DR660 drum machine um, that's outboard that's a that's yeah. Mixed, yeah yeah an Akai SO1 sampler which is the very basic one the cheapest one yeah an Akai S20 I had a Roland SY35 which is the cheaper of the sorry a Yamaha SY85 which is the cheapest like Yamaha keyboard you can get away with professionally um, we had all sorts in, in, in you know in my studio so, I started to so build PBH bits and I discussed like one of the things we fell into talking about was the relative cost of starting to DJ right so yeah. now compared to a point in time in the past mm. I always like to point out I'm not judging here I'm not yeah. saying anyone was better or worse or right or wrong but we worked out that to buy a pair of turntables, to buy a mixer, and to buy enough records, and buy headphones, cartridges, mm. and to buy enough records to play for maybe an hour out. I mean, we did some rough maths, and I think Paul got to something like 1,600 quid yeah. in, in today's money, right? And, and we're kind of going, now, realistically, what you need is a laptop, which you might already have, yeah. a crap copy of, of, of some sort of DJ software, earphones that you've probably already got, and a controller, which you could probably get for 50 quid at mm. cheapest, right? Now, the only reason I make that point is... How much do you think it took you to assemble that studio which you've just described in, in, a, in a, a rough figure? I don't want to price for every every bit, but you've described, what, six or seven bits of outboard kit yeah. plus a computer. How much do you think that might have cost you to amass? About two grand, but bear in mind, I stole a lot of bits. Um... <laughs> I'm sorry I stole my desk from Oldham College. Um, <laughs> I stole my Yamaha studio desk from Oldham College. There you go. But, um, it, it's, but two grand is still, comparative to today, mm. a phenomenal amount of money. Yeah. Because there are people out there, far more talented than me, who could download a cracked copy of Ableton to their computer tonight yeah. and probably create a better track than I have in the past yeah. 10 years yeah. talking about it. Uh, but, and, and for almost nothing probably a laptop that they were given for Christmas yep. when they were under the age of 20 and they could go on torrent a copy of Fruity Loops. I mean, yeah. Avicii's a great example of this. I mean, there's plenty of other people as well, but Tim with his copy of Fruity Loops, right? I doubt he paid for his first copy mm. of Fruity Loops and was creating, because he's just a, a creative guy. Yeah. Phenomenal. But anyway, so you've, you've, you've created your studio. Did you, were you creating, were you creating music before you were on 
Pirate Radio, or were you on Pirate Radio before you were creating music? I was on Pirate Radio around the same time. Okay. Um, and how did you get into the Pirate Radio thing? Pirate Radio is um, comes from the back of me getting involved in hospital radio. Okay. And I met two really dodgy fuckers. Um, not dodgy fuckers. I met, I met two proper geeks. Okay. Real, real radio geeks. Stephen Booth, and I won't mention the second name because he's quite professionally known now. Um, but Stephen Booth, I don't mind name checking. Um, the second person has the initials PE, um, okay. and 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 basically they 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 were absolute radio anoraks that yeah. that owned the pirate transmitter, and I corrupted okay. them. Um, Excellent. And and we what we used to do is they they were very very clever guys. They used to um they used to use we we got we managed to divert where we were broadcasting from to a tower block at the top of Werneth. If you come into Oldham, yeah. you'll see four tower blocks in an area called Werneth. And right at the very, very top floor, we had a transmitter that diverted it. So that when, when the DTI, Department of Trade and Industry, used to come looking for pirate radio stations every Sunday. Yeah. Um, sorry, du- during the week, by the way. Um, but Sunday was the, their day off. Uh, they would not find it. So they, they, they might actually find the transmitter... But you wouldn't find, find you yeah. Find so we had a dummy location, and what we used to do is, is use a network of people that would relay signals through through the whole thing. And Extreme FM was brilliant. I, I loved Extreme. We we did Extreme for um, what a good six months, and, and it got to the point where we, we kind of shit ourselves on, on, on a few occasions. We thought, nah, stop it. Um, and as well, Latix Live that I started working for, uh, like they they picked up on it, and I thought I can't carry on doing it because you know I'm a sports journalist it's I'm, I'm being paid some decent money here and so, so at this so at this point you, you have got a sort of a profession yeah I've got, I've got a profession I'm working as a sports I'm journalist not the DJing or producing isn't a profession sir but what I mean is you've got something else going on which isn't the music side yeah, of stuff yeah. okay so how did you and let's touch on this briefly but I find it interesting how did you become a sports journalist I, I became a sports journalist through Oldham Hospital Radio, okay, uh, so and I was um, I'd, I'd been and I've I've been involved in in the the hospital radio for a long long time, even beyond like when when I'd gone to Kiss and Galaxy. Okay, um, I carried on not as a presenter, but as just as a volunteer, just yeah. chatting to people on wards and, okay. and just you know just, just getting requests and making sure people are all right, it's, tuning in radios. Um, it's something that's that's missing, I think, these days because I tried to get into hospital radio and sort of couldn't it just was phasing out and wasn't really at the time that yeah. I was trying to get involved pirate radio maybe still is a thing in some places but it's never been something that's been for want of a better term no putting on my radar like it was clamped down on way before yeah you know and and, and I did a podcast recently with two guys in, in Dublin actually one guy called uh, Mark McCabe another guy called Steve um, Cooper who both got into pirate radio in, in Ireland and went on to then become Steve's still a huge on air personality in, in, in Dublin in, mm. on, on commercial stations and Mark went on to work for RTE and, and become yeah. all kinds of stuff and it's although potentially a naughty and somewhat frowned upon back door into the industry nevertheless still a training ground a breeding ground yeah exactly you know, a, 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 you know almost a place for people to cut their teeth and learn and that doesn't exist now, no. which I do think is, is kind of sad. Now, 
a chaos. But, but, but it's a bit like it's a bit like things like um, you know illegal raves and things like that. You know, yeah. like I said, actually, actually challenging the establishment and doing yeah. things what you want. The the only reason it probably doesn't exist is because um, technologically it's not that relevant. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say obviously things like you know you can start this is a podcast, you can start a YouTube channel, you can do lots of other things, but. Something exciting about there being a, a pirate radio station. Something exciting about listening to it. At the time, it. it was though. I mean, we we you know this this is well before social media. Yeah. I can even still remember like our mobile phone number, uh, which, which we used to take shouts on, which is oh uh, five eight nine eight six two seven four seven. And you know, you never forget numbers like that. You never forget little things that you said. And yeah. So at this point, you are doing hospital radio. Yep. So we're talking early 90s. Mid, mid 90s. Mid, mid 90s, right? mid to late 90s. You're doing hospital radio, you're doing bits of production, you're having some success yep. with that. Are you doing a lot more gigs now, or is it still little bits and Gigs have gone a little bit stagnant, but I'm still doing them. I'll tell you what, I was like, and, and, and like a, a mad thing for, for me is, again, this reflects throughout my whole career, is I was actually getting more work playing jazz. In okay. places like art galleries okay. than, than I was actually playing out house music. Okay. Uh, I was still playing out, you know, house gigs and stuff in the mid nineties. I was playing places like Pitt and Nelson. Um, you know, I was back at Southside a little bit. I was playing places like uh, Yates's in Oldham. I was doing, you know, just wherever wherever came up. But I was never really settled in a residency. Okay. Um, until ninety seven, and that that's you know that's when. Um, I started doing a little bit some pieces in Warrington and I moved to Warrington. Okay. But, you know, I, I was playing places like bloody um, The Cube in Manchester. I was playing like like 70s jazz folk sets. Okay. You know, like jazz is like a, my, my kind of thing, really, my, okay. my personal thing. Okay. I started to get, you know, a lot of the work and a lot, you know, people were into jazz, original jazz, jazz originals and stuff. Places like uh, Live Cafe in Middleton. I played places like... Um, Oh, what's it called? Matt and Fred's in, okay. in Manchester. You know, like a, a, a night and day cafe. In I think Manchester. it's. I think it's something. You know, one one of the reasons. One of the reasons that I started this podcast, and there, and there are many, is hopefully that some younger people are listening who may be interested in becoming a DJ. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that you said before really resonated with me, which is just I just like playing records. You know, and and I and I say that I just love playing records. And one thing that I always like to sort of bring up is is like. Is I think try and make some ridiculous controversial statement here, but I think DJs and DJs, a lot of DJs that I've met and a lot of DJs who really love the art of being a DJ and love playing records, love playing lots of different types of records. They yeah. don't just nail themselves into I play techno or I play. Do you know what I mean? And it's like I, I would happily go and play, you know, an indie set. And then I did on Saturday, I did a corporate thing early on. I was playing all sorts of like 80s, 12 inches and bits and bobs. And then I went to digital afterwards and playing tech house. Like, but then on Sunday, I would go and play something else. I, I just love collecting music. I love playing well, music. I, I did that for a long time. I used to play out six nights a week. Uh, one, like the height of what I was doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually the height of what I'm doing now. Like the height of like the, the say 10 years ago, I, I would play like a Monday night. I'd be at Paparazzi playing indie. Yeah. Um, Tuesday night I'd be off, but like, sorry, no, Tuesday night I'd be playing Gregory's in Nantwich. I'd be playing like, um, you're just a, a random selection of like, you know, current sort of dance and R&B. Yeah. Thursday night I'd be playing Bounce. Yeah. Friday night I'd be playing Baseline in Halifax. Yeah. You know, like, and it's a really, really great thing. I mean, like, the mad thing is I've never really played any kind of, kind of like, chart and party, so I've never really gone okay. down that route. And two years ago, <clears throat> 
due to things beyond my control, and I won't go into this for, for a lot of reasons, yeah. I ended up being in a lot of debt. Okay. Um, so it meant, like, I used to have to do my Saturday afternoons, and they, they had these gigs going at Pop World, and I used to do Pop World in Preston. thought, I've never done this before in my life. Easy money. You know, and do, do you know what? To actually learn how to be able to play stuff like Steps and yeah. that kind of stuff in a nightclub. Yeah. It's actually a trade. Yeah. It, you know, there, there's plenty of people in this world that do the worst jobs in the world that they can't stand. And do you, do you honestly think, like, I'm going to complain about playing Play stuff like Steps and S Club 7 for an hour on, on 30 quid You're an hour? people happy. People when, aren't when, they're booing you. you know, people aren't they're booing you in pop No, world. exactly. They're having a great time. They're having a brilliant time. But do you honestly think <laughs> I'm going to look at that and think, and, and think that's 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 wrong. And and when some somebody there's like putting caps on the end of toothpaste for fucking eight pound an hour, and think, yeah, I agree. And and, and feel unfortunate. So then, fuck. so then what's so what's coming next? You are making music. You are you doing the pirate radio is sort of finished after six months or so. Like what is there a next big step that we're kind of the talking next, about? The next big is, step um, is when I split with my first girlfriend okay and I start going fucking west okay I start going very 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 enjoying west enjoying the party a little bit yeah. too much yes uh, <laughs> and I go very 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 west okay and I start making really 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 dark breakbeat okay electronic jazz um, <laughs> but what results in that is um, me starting narcotic funk projects Okay. And I, I, I release. A, I, I end up getting signed. Um, I started carrying on making music and getting weirder and weirder and weirder and darker and darker and darker. And I make. I basically I make interplanetary breaks, which ends up getting played by people like Carl Craig. And it, it's it. Basically, I make that record. Comes out on a, on a white. Becomes pretty rare. Um, and it's you know gets ended up bloody. You know, like Ministry, DJ Mag, all, all talking about it. Nobody can find it. I'm like, we've only got 100 copies. And I, I get involved in this collection. This this whole collective starts pretty much from the, the whole Oldham thing. It was run by a guy called Brian McDade and Jeff Granger, who's a resident of Subculture. Yeah. And I make this record. Anyway, but this is me going away to university and, and kind of losing my head a little bit. And, you know, but I made that record and that's, that started to... Open a few little bits of doors. Yeah. Um, but I, I started to lose myself a little bit. Still playing out a bit, but I, I got got very, very dark, very experimental. You know, I played a lot of old school hip hop breaks, uh, a load of bits and pieces. You know what I mean? But it, it was um, it was a funny period. Okay. Um, but I'm, we're, we're sort of hitting late teens, early twenties now. Yeah. Um, where did you go to university? Uh, I went to university in Warrington. Okay. Uh, well, I went. I went to University College Warrington. Yeah. Um, and I made it. Like I said, I, like I said, I done that, and I started. This, I ended up starting this label and put out a few little bits, and okay. it, it was probably the most bipolar label you'll, uh, you'll ever come across. It was called Funk's Lab. I think there was only three releases we we, we did. You know, one of them ended up being like a, a crazy mad jazz funk record uh, that sampled Sesame Street. Um, <laughs> it's a track called Burton and Ernie's Jazzy Journey by the Sesame Street Preachers, um, which is there, it exists, it's on Discogs, you, you know, it's there to hear. Sampled Roy Ayers track, 
Um, but I did that. But like the the back end of the nineties were, were a really really dark period. Okay. Really really dark period. So then, what happens in the early two thousands? Well, I'll tell you what. Right, the right right the very end of the nineties. Okay. I um, I start working for Galaxy. Okay, and how does a young Sean Levy start working for Galaxy? FM. Right place, right time. Okay. Right place, right time. Always right place, right time. Um, I bumped into basically it was it was a connection, and I ended up working uh, for a guy called Simon Ritchie, who I owe my entire career to in okay. in radio. Certainly, probably in in everything really. Um, and Simon Ritchie sort of brought me under his wing, and he had me working on Adam Cole's Sony Award-winning Breakfast Show. Okay. So anyway, brings me in. Teaches me how to be a radio producer. Um, I'm already doing the degree anyway, which in, is at, in radio anyway. Okay. Uh, I'm doing that my degree in, in Warrington in radio uh, and business studies. And uh, Simon brings me under under his wing, teaches me everything, uh, and gives me a hell of a lot of trust. And you know, I end up you know becoming Graham Parks producer uh, okay. on the radio. Um, Legendary Scottish yeah. DJ, resident at the Hacienda. Yeah. Uh, end up being Leaky Fresh's producer, Slamming Boys, at one point the Dream Team, at one point, um, you know, I'd worked with everybody and like I started to learn, create, and, and a big shout as well to Dan Hartley who taught me everything in audio production, okay. taught me how to actually do things like things like radio commercial. I've, ju- I've just, I've done a radio commercial today, actually, believe it or not, and, and it's funny enough, Dan, Dan never goes out of my mind when I'm thinking all the, all the little tricks that he taught me and everything. Um, so, so yeah, I start to learn my trade at Galaxy 102 in Manchester, eventually become a big producer with, with the network, still doing little bits of DJing here and there. Um, but, you, but your main job is the presenter. Main, main, main job is, is a radio producer. Yeah. Um, you know, I was playing at a place called Bar Centro quite a lot in the centre of Manchester, like a very little bar where you used to go downstairs. Yeah. Lucky to get away with your, your wages. Um, but, like... You know, I'm, I'm still carrying on, but yeah. like the radio production thing. Did that take away from the music production thing? Like, were you so busy with? No, I've always carried on doing little bits, but I mean, it calmed down a little bit then. Yeah. Um, and I, I got to a point where where I just like I disassembled my studio, and like, I was more interested, and, and this is quite relevant massively, is I was more interested in mashups. Okay. I, I could make mashups. Like I, I could put quite easily put an acapella over yeah, it. Yeah, you had the ear for it. It was quick. Yeah. You didn't need as much equipment. Yeah. But but there, um, that, that that's where we were. That there with Galaxy, and like that just massively opened the door. So then did and you? I went, I, I, I'd sorted my head out at that point. I've gone a lot more mainstream than I'd ever been before. The new really. experimental jazz breaks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so to, were you? Were you? Making mashups and giving them to these guys that were on air and getting them played yet? Yeah. Was that something that was kind of happening? What I even got to a stage where the whole Galaxy network across Newcastle, across Manchester, Bristol, Birmingham, we got mashup of the week, and that that was my just you on your leg of the week, point? basically. Oh. Uh, well, I was under that. That brings something else, but uh, we we were going under the name Trick Babies. Uh, and we we were doing bootleg of the week. So had you met Sai yet, or were you just? I've not I've not with... quite met Sai, but it, right. it was coming up. Okay. Uh, and and like I said, we we we've done things like bootleg of the week, 
um, we started to build what Where we're doing. Where did the name, I'm always interested. Where did the well, name Trick Babies come from? Um, well, do you, do you know Trick Babies is the bastard offspring of a prostitute? Uh, and like like the the call um they actually, they actually call mashups bastard pop okay that, that was the, the the european term okay for, for mashups and I, I just like the idea of trick babies i mean like i said i mean you know like i said to and, and i've continued to use the word bastard over the years in, in many years uh, but but like i said um bastard offspring of a prostitute and i just think like the idea of just like the the white label the, the yeah. whole thing is, is very very similar it's like too illegitimate yeah and that's where trick babies came from okay um but yeah trick baby is that are we about to meet Cy, yeah. I met Cy. I, I, I said I'm, I, I'd met Cy years before, anyway. But um, I just don't. Is he sort of a look? Is he Manchester? I don't. I, I know of him. I don't know him that well. Is he a Manchester yeah. guy? Like, is that how you'd met him previously? He, he, like, yeah, he's, a, he's originally from Ashton on the Line. Right, okay. Originally from here. Um, and you just met him sort of on the DJ scene, just right. kicking around parties. Well, this this is another story we've not even gone touched on yet. Um, me taking Extreme FM legal. Um, okay. <laughs> Which is another thing. Um, I got together with the original members of Extreme FM in 2001. This is, so at this point, you are currently working as a producer. At- I'm working as a producer. At this point as well, I'm working as a teacher. Okay. I'm, I'm doing all sorts. I'm, I'm like, at one point, I'm like, I even got to the point where I'm, I'm erecting fencing in a pensioner's council estate. Okay. I'm, I'm, I've done all sorts. Um, but... This is the point where we tried to take Extreme FM legal, okay. where, where I met Cy. And um, what happened is we decided we'd give it one more go. We originally started as a pub meeting, just, okay. you know, the three of us, just getting together, just reminiscing about Cy, one of these three. Yeah. Cy isn't okay. involved at all at okay. this point. Um, Extreme FM, like with, with the original members, we meet up and we think, should we do another pirate radio just for old time's sake? And the conversation escalates and we think, do you know what? Can we get five grand together? Should we do it legally get for 30 license. days? And then we think, yeah, let's do it. And then the money escalates and escalates and escalates. And it got to the point where, where we went live on on air. And like I said, we, we started recruiting our jocks. Uh, Cy was one of them. Okay. So uh, did you get a, a, a radio licence? Yeah, official legal to, radio licence. We, we plucked Cy from one of the bars in, in Oldham. Uh, he was broadcast on what, on FM or AM? A- or FM, it was 90... Um, do you know, I can't remember the frequency. I've got the media pack upstairs as well. Okay. But it was, uh, like I said, we, we got a legal licence for Extreme FM. Uh, and we, 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 we went live and, you know, we, we, we did everything completely legally. Um, what... Like I said, we, we can knew the costs. We struggled with advertising. We battled as well because it was um, the same time. Bear in mind, this is Oldham. At the same time as the race riots. Okay. So certain advertisers wouldn't advertise with us because of it. Certain yeah. advertisers wouldn't advertise us because we used this advertiser or yeah. that advertiser. Yeah. It became an absolute nightmare and probably the, the biggest money loss I think we've ever done in our career. But you don't put money on things like that. No, and, it's all experience. And, and and all we did it. But anyway, I met Cy and we, we, we were both doing mashups at the time. And like I said, we, we, we ended up teaming up and forming Trick Babies. 
and um, we, like I said, I, I was already at Galaxy, and so I got involved, and we we we, we did Trick Babies. We started Mashup of the Week, started doing all the EPs. Uh, the 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 big breakthrough one was um, LMC. No, that, this is before LMC, well okay. before LMC, and that's not ours, by the way. Like, so I just want to clarify that. Oh, okay, sorry. But um, Madonna, the one Madonna music mixed over the ones flawless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is the breakthrough track for us. Okay. Um, which we ended up pressing on vinyl, and then we did four more EPs. And then LMC were looking for a follow-up for Clouds of So why did I get that confused there? Sorry, why? why? Everybody always assumes like that. that I've joined LMC at the time of Clouds Above. Right. Everybody always assumes I did Clouds Above. That's not true. Okay. Um, that's not true. I, I partial, I had minor involvement in that track. Okay. Um, but nothing like for me to say that's my track. Yeah. I do play it in every single set, <laughs> um, but still, you know, I milk that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but like my track really with LMC is you get what you give just just on the business side of of the tri- early trick baby stuff because it A it always interests me and I think B it's it's a real eye opener because of how different the industry is today were you were you illegally pressed not illegally but were you pressing stuff to vinyl which technically wasn't particularly legal because you didn't have the rights clearance but then selling it into record shops and then getting money from it or was it or was that not the case or how was how was this stuff or was this stuff distributed with licenses or how was it how was it actually happening as a physical business we couldn't give a flying fuck about the law um at that time i mean yeah, well, just... <laughs> re- realistically i think this is the best lesson that anybody can ever learn in music at that time me and Sai owned nothing yeah they couldn't take our house. They yeah. Couldn't take our car. What are they going to sue you for? Yeah. What the What the fuck are they going to fucking noticed, take from get you? Noticed. Do you, do you know what's the worst case scenario? What are they going to do? Send Send gangsters around. It's not going to happen, really, yeah. is it? When When you're sampling Madonna or whatever, it doesn't matter. What What's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is your track ends up being the biggest track in the world, and you earn nothing off it. Yeah, but you, but you end up going name. out as five grand and out but but is, is that what you were doing? You were pressing stuff to vinyl, oh, yeah. taking it to record shops, and then sale or return or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, one of the interesting stories that the um, uh, and again I've shouted him out a few times here. Paul Ridney does a does a good podcast, which mm. is Secrets of a Dance Hit, and he spoke to the Italian guy behind Black Legend track. Yeah, and he basically made no money off the actual release, mm. but had already made thousands of pounds by selling the original bootleg yeah. just you know to shops and stuff I, I think now though you, you just have to look at like what pushes up your DJ fee that, yeah. that's the only thing of course it's, it's only it's, it's only you know music, if yeah. you've, got, you've got a big record colder want to manage you and, yeah. and straight away and even, even the example I always use and it's only just changed this has only just changed recently but the fees that the Verve were getting paid because of Bittersweet Symphony mm. regardless of whether the Rolling Stones were keeping yeah. the money because of the string sample is neither here nor there when they're getting fifty thousand pounds to headline or yeah. hundred thousand or two thousand yeah. pounds to headline a festival. I know it's all been changed back recently, but without Bittersweet Symphony, I know they had some of the great records, yeah. but that was definitely a record which That was the breakthrough up, one, yeah, wasn't it? Pushed them up, pushed them up yeah. festival lineups. So how bear in mind, um I know you could talk for hours. What do you want to talk about? What more could you say about the Trick Babies? What more could you say about that journey? Trick, Trick Babies was a great journey. It was for, for me. It, it was all about me sitting in a studio making mashups, like on on almost on an assembly line. Yeah. 
uh, and Saigon aren't representing us. And, and like, so is that how it kind of worked? Was, was pretty pretty much DJ so. I mean, Saigon's a DJ. I mean, bear, bear in mind, though, I, like, so I, I believe I'm a better DJ than Sai. Um, he does actually still a little does bit, he? but it, like I said, I I was more interested in playing local venues okay. and, and just being a local resident. I, okay. I actually forget the fact as I've said, I think I'm a better DJ than Sai. I will say that anyway to his face, but I, like I said, we, we're two very very different DJs. Okay. I'm more community focused. I believe in DJing in a different way to Sai. Sai okay. is more interested in playing the was more interested in bigger crowds and okay. entertaining and he is a fantastic entertainer yeah. as a person he is just next level you know re- realistically I was more interested in modestly playing in places like Bedroom which is you know literally like um, you know like a minute's walk away from where I am now okay. um, and, and just building something really different and special that people remember so I was more interested in sort of the 2000 people okay. and so it worked um, well. So it worked well as a as worked a... pretty well. You know what I mean. But I mean, like I said, I, I was the producer. I mean, so I had little bits of input and stuff like that. He had ideas and stuff. Um, but you know, we did we, we we did what we did, and it kind of worked really really well for us. Did, we it, op- did it open a lot of doors? It did for Sai. Uh, for me, long term, it definitely did. I okay. mean, what like what what you got to bear in mind is it opened a lot more doors for Sai at the time than it did for me. But the knock-on effect of it opening doors for Psy ended up being a massive knock-on effect for me. Yeah. So it's always an equal thing. You you, yeah. know, you can look at it however you want. But like I said, you you, you know pe- people used to say to me, "Why are you letting him get credit for what you're doing?" But re- realistically, no. You know, you like for any kind of partnership, you need two different people yeah. that together that, that can do what they do. And long term, it all comes back. Yeah, I agree. It benefits us both. And, and me, me and Psy, I mean, even though we split. We're um we're still really really good mates. You know we were chatting last night about um like size working with Kygo. Yeah. Because um, Sai Edwards yeah. does a lot of visuals. Sai's probably one of the best in the world for what, the what world. he's doing now. Yeah. Um like me me and Sai he's doing visuals for Kygo. Me and me and Sai were chatting about his new single, which is uh, t- takes a higher look. Yeah. yeah, the Whitney sample. Um like I said, you know just just chatting randomly, you know, looking yeah. at ideas actually and you know, little tools that he can do in his set yeah. um, for, for, for Kygo and, and stuff and it's brilliant what he's done is just next level I can't yeah. you know that, well, he sort of spotted brilliant. something quite early on didn't he that the fact that yeah. that level of production is going to yeah. require next level visuals and he yeah. started to supply that and, and he can do it but he's always been into the visuals and he, he was a graphic designer okay. when, when you know when, when I met Sai but like I said with me and him even though we, we, we like I said we, we went through a, a couple of years of just not speaking and like it was a it, it was a Bit of a shitty split, to be honest with you. And the, the part of it was my fault. Um, you know, we, we we could have resolved it a little bit, but you know, in time, we you know we still speak. Yeah. We, we we we're great allies. You know, great mates and stuff. Help each other out. But we had to do things that were things that that were for us. Yeah. And then so at this point, are you still? So you launched. So you, I know there's a bit of a mixed timeline here. So you, you took extreme legal. Yeah. How long did that last? About 11 days before we ran out of money. Okay. <laughs> At this point, are you still working for Galaxy? Galaxy, yeah. Uh, do you, and forgive my naivety or my lack of memory, do you ever become an on-air sort of personality for Galaxy? 
Right to the very end, right at the very end. Okay. I get my chance, really. And, and like I said, it just never worked out. We, okay. we had a change and we moved over to Capital. Okay. Um, and what and, happened at Capital? What's the story? Well, Capital just had their own ideas and just sacked everyone. Okay. Which, um, <laughs> <laughs> they, they kept a few people on, but Capital had their own ideas, yeah. uh, just as I was sort of breaking through. Okay. Um, Where does MTV fit into all of this? MTV, right, MTV MASH was the first ever legal mashup show okay and we would make the mashups we'd be involved in the presenting it lasted you and say yeah it lasted six episodes yeah can you still find these episodes you can't find them anywhere do you know why lowest ever MTV ratings <laughs> went right over everyone's heads amazing um, you know, like the the best thing that we did was uh, Elton John versus Sunshine Anderson. Heard it all before, um, and like over. Uh, Are you ready for love? I've definitely yeah. heard that. Yeah. yeah. Are you ready for sunshine? Yeah. And yeah. it's on. It's it should be on mine somewhere. And with me and Si have searched for years and years and years. And there's no bit like like my mum taped them. She can't find them anywhere. But we we done that was MTV Europe though. So like so it's harder to find them in the UK. Yeah. But anyway, MTV mash up mash. Great to be part of it at the time. Yeah. I remember being in a uh, bedroom, which was my club just down the road from here, and sitting down, all my mates watching it, like, no. And, yeah, can't find them anywhere. Um, That's mad. And so, so what sort of time are we talking about then? So, Capital... 2003 for that. So Capital so, 2008, I think it was. Okay. Slightly later. Um, and, and what changes... Are you seeing even in sort of nightlife between that sort of mid nineties, late nineties, and late sort of noughties? Like in that decade, there's huge change. I'm starting to see social media start. Okay. Uh, which I think has has a lot to do with 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 the change. I mean, um, I mean venues, are, venues, crowds in venues, what people are wearing. I've never looked at what people wear. It was, uh, do you know why I pick it up? Do you know why I pick up on it? Because you mentioned before about to get into a club you need to be wearing, you know, yeah, oh God, yeah. shirt and, 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 and shoes and tie. And I remember, you know, as a kid, you had to be smartly dressed. Yeah, ab- to absolutely. Um, Acid House obviously changed that in, in many respects. I, I've got a rule personally still, which is I won't play in a venue with, with where anybody is allowed in in tracksuits. Okay. Um, I'll still stick to that venue. Yeah. So st- still, still stick to that rule. Yeah. Um, yeah, the dress codes have come down a little bit. Um, I don't think they're going to come any further down. I don't. What, what else? Where else can you go from? Look, if you're in a trackie, then then fuck off. You know what yeah. I mean? The, the, there's no. Where else can you go from that? I remember once going to to, to Cream at Nation, and this kid got got searched, and he they made he had three pairs of trackie bottoms. <laughs> they made him take off one pair, and he had another pair on. They made him take the second pair. I don't know why he had three pairs of shackies on, but it's always it's stuck with me for the rest of my life. This kid had three pairs of shackies on. Um, so we're coming. So we're now coming towards the end of the sort of I hate to call this, but we're coming towards the end of the noise. Yeah, you're now no longer sort of um, a radio producer as mm-hmm. such because of because of the thing with with yeah. with, 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 with Galaxy and Kit and um, Capital. Sorry. You know, we don't, you know, the, the, the whole legalisation of the Extreme FM was a, a, a difficult and expensive time, but nonetheless you did it. Mm. 
the trick babies has sort of come to an end it, it dissolves around 2011 oh right okay so, uh, oh, oh, so it's still yeah, going at I, that, that. Well, it, it ends um, it ends pretty in, in a mad way really over a record sign made with uh, Ben from Fats and Small okay uh, uh, that, that uh, ended up getting released and me seeing it on Beatport and thinking what the fuck and what was that record? What was it called? I can't even remember. I think, okay. it, was a, I think it was a cover version of Byron Stingley Get Up. Okay. And me, me like going through all the new releases, like Cy Edwards and Nick Hussey. What the fuck? What the fuck? And and like and you know, me, me just erupting. And, and realistically, to, to be fair, I'd made a record with Mike Lee a few weeks ago, but I was going for a point where I just, you know, I'm, I'm you know, like sometimes you make bad decisions and, and you erupt in, in the wrong way yeah. I'm not somebody that loses a temper a lot you know what I mean but I, I, I looked at it and I judged it in a really really harsh way and I don't think Si deserved like the, the way that I treated him uh, and I ended up making up with him but still it's I, I don't know I don't think this is the emotion that you're talking about but I you know still being honest still really struggle if I see Sometimes sort of internally, it very rarely becomes external. But even if I see someone I genuinely like doing well, I just have that like little bit of envy, that little bit of jealousy. Do you know what I mean? It's not a nice thing. It's certainly not a positive character trait. And then I have a word with myself and 30 seconds later, I go, oh, well done, mate. That's wicked. Do you know what I mean? I love that record. Well done. And I do genuinely mean that when I say it. Yeah. But I do have that little twinge of like, fuck. I'm, I'm not... <laughs> I, I, I respect that. I've never had that, it's, to be honest with you. Even people I can't stand, you know what I mean? I mean, there are people in life that don't deserve it, but, you know, you know, realistically, it's like the, the, there are people that I do see doing well that I know are absolutely don't deserve it, but, you know, in some way, they've worked for it. Yeah, and, in some way, they must. I mean, in a funny old way, I watched Kylie on that um, legend slot at Glastonbury on yeah. Sunday, and... Um, I looked at her and just thought, she has just been, I mean, like, even before social media, because of her career in, in Neighbours, she has just been the sort of perfect example of a beautiful vessel that has been filled yeah. with pop nuggets. Do you know what I mean? Like, people yeah. have just dropped absolute popped gold in that yeah. vessel, and she has carried Ky- them off. Kylie, by the way, is the one person I want to work with. That you haven't yet? I would love to work with Kylie. I mean, I, I, do you know what? If I made Kylie a '90s style rave tune, yeah. she'd go to number one. She oh no be. doubt, and that's Ky- Kylie's my whole pass, by the way. This is this has been agreed with, with Lisa, okay, so by the way. Totally this, Kylie's my whole pass. Totally it's fine. allowed. Yeah, um, but she, yeah, it's but in that age of people who are just you know gifted gifted things, like she has had some of the best records yeah. put on, on a plate for it. Um, so then, so. Okay, I'm interested in this like early, um, like 2010. So only you know eight nine years ago, which only well, this is this is the the birth of Boy Raver really, and and like everything. Uh, After after Trick Babies, what do you do? Yes, I mean, I I made I made this record, and it's out there actually still on on sale on Juno, which is Sean Lieber Hernando's Hideaway. I made this sort of like Swedish house mafia type track and. It was all right. I didn't sell particularly well, but you know, I I, I looked at it and I thought, am I, am I actually enjoying this music? It's all Will I Am and yeah. Cheryl Cole, all all like shitty EDM Swedish house, yeah, shite. And I thought, am I really really enjoying this? 
And I'd, I'd come to Darley Lounge in Warrington, um, which ended up being probably, the, you know, my legacy as a DJ. And I thought, what the fuck am I going to do here? Because I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to make a living. This music's horrible. This music is absolutely horrible. And I thought, well, what do you want to do as a musician? Where, where do you want to go? What, what do you want out of life? What, you know, what are you enjoying? And... I seem to be listening to more and more sort of like early 90s old school and, you know, I always like me listening to choice and I thought, well, you've not made music for a while. You've done the odd little bit here and there. Why don't you take an acapella, one of the biggest tracks, and just kind of do what you want with it? And I took um, Seat Bromance by Avicii. Yeah. I thought I'll make it into like a, a 91 rave thing, like full-on rave stabs and everything. But you do know the interesting thing about that acapella, which was, so, that acapella was from like an Italian, like an Italian, so, yeah. so Axwell... It's love you seeking, isn't it? But but yeah, but, yeah. So, but Axwell put, so Tim, Tim Bergling, Avicii made, made the Bromance record mm. as, a, as, a, as an instrumental. And it was actually Axwell who put that acapella over the top of it really it's from it's from like an Italian duo or like an I don't think it's an old school Italian vocal but it's from like an Italian yeah. um, dance duo and then Amanda Wilson re-sings it yeah um, oh right yeah go and look into it like it's a super interesting story Only I'm not trying to like look like I'm you know no no, no I it's, it's, it's just interesting because because you know who sampled who and all that kind of stuff I get into absolute rabbit holes of who this record became that record yeah. became this record and just blows your mind and even yeah even that is like you know go and look, go and look at it in the next week or so it's like that you know go and find that where that record that came from and you'll, mm. you'll, you know you'll be interested but anyway sorry so you you took that acapella which was the, the seat yeah the, the, the I, I recreated seat, seat bromance but yeah. with massive rave stabs okay. and, and like I said I'm, I just spiralled it from there I just carried on you know like and, and just carried on making stuff and before I you know what Ten years, well, nearly ten years on. I made five hundred tracks. The the good thing about about that, I guess, is that because of the gigs you were doing, because of the sound that you were making, you could play the songs in your sets really easily because people were loving the kind of the old school yeah. sound. Well, the thing about Warrington is it's got a long standing relationship with with. Places like the world and Mr. Smiths, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're very into their old school. Yeah, and I, I managed to pull it off basically in yeah. what I was doing. And, you know, and then you know, and it's great. It was great to be able to sandwich, you know, what I could get away with in between those. And you know, I got away with that for a, for a couple of years. You know, to kind of pull it off, not playing the originals, playing yeah. things like Christmas. You know, don't don't wake me up by Avicii. You know, things like that. I'm not having to play that horrible yeah. thing, uh, which. You know, yeah, exactly, and, and just whacking a great big rave piano in, in instead. And from, again, for my own interest and those who who are, who, are, who are listening, what? So we, we touched on the what you did with the Trick Babies thing and the pressing things to vinyl. What are you doing with Boy Raver? Are you just giving them away for free on SoundCloud? Are you pressing these up to vinyl? Are you just keeping them as personal edits? Like, what are you doing with them? I I've got a private subscription website. Yeah, what's it called? called? Anthems Club Music. Yeah, um, which is originally called Anthems Club till the site was hacked. Yeah, um, which I'm kind of I'm I'm probably going to disband in the next few months to be okay. fair, because um, I'm 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 going to go back to SEN teaching, um, okay. like a few days a week. Right, we're just back from a quick toilet break. Um, where where were we? 
Um, Roy Raver. Yes. So you had, what's the name of the website again so people can check it out for? Uh, Anthems Club Music. And that's where um, you were kind of putting all the stuff that you were making. Yeah, yeah, I pretty much dissolved it now because I'm, I'm not, I'm, okay. I'm going to go back to working as, uh, like a, as, as an SEN teacher, which is something I'm really, really passionate about. Um, I've not really got the time to, to, to do what I, you know, what, what I really, really want to do with, with the music. Um, Did you get anything, like, with the Boy Raver stuff, I know you said that you used a lot of kind of current acapellas and then and wrote yeah. the Raver stuff underneath it. Did you get to the point where you were kind of writing new old rave music and kind of releasing it, or was it all kind of like... I, I released Am I Dreaming, uh, which, okay. is, which is written, it's completely original with Angie Murphy, who... Yeah. Um, He's a really, really great vocalist. I do plan on an album. I've, I've been building an album for about five years, but just when, when you want to release an album, you want it to be absolutely perfect. I've already got the deal in place, uh, okay. and, and it's it's going to come out in cheeky tracks. Um, but I'm just I'm not ready to issue it yet. It, may, it might be five years away, but when it, when you issue that album, it'd be, be the only one I ever, ever issue. Um, but I want it to be absolutely perfect. I want it to be. It's, it's a funny thing about making music. I think one of um, I used to I work with a guy called Mark, and years ago we used to be in Leeds. We used to be we used to share like a double studio with the Utah Saints, yeah. and you could look through the glass and see Tim and Jez, yeah. who were great, great, great guys. I'm going to do a podcast with Tim soon. But but one of the things Jez, I think it was Jez, said was like, you never you never finish your track. You just yeah. get sick of it. <laughs> yeah, and I, and I kind of like you know don't you, I, I, you know. I'm I'm the opposite like with, with what I actually do it, it's just straight in and out it's just like get it fucking done yeah. get it on but when it's actually your personal stuff when it's something that, that's a bit more personal a bit more when it's soulful when it's when you're talking about your life and your life experiences yeah. you're not going to issue that in a rush you, you're just going to issue that when, when you're absolutely ready and I, when when the Boy Raver album does eventually drop, I've got the title ready. Um, when the Boy Raver album actually does drop, it's um, it's going to be something you'll listen to from start to finish. It's cool. something that means something. The the album, by the way, is get poor or get get poor or, or live trying, um, which is a take on the Fifty Cent one. The the album that that was always the album title, get Did poor or live trying, because I've never made money out of Boy Raver. I was going to ask, so do, you, do you DJ, do you play out as Boy Raver or do you play out as Sean Lever? I can play out as Boy Raver, but I always play out as Sean Lever. Okay, so you- Boy Raver is the artist, but you, you know, like I said, and I've had people that have come to me like offering me options on the brand and ideas on the brand to send younger people out to do it. And okay. I'm not interested in that. Um, no, but it is a cool. It is a cool name. It is a cool mm. brand. That is that again. You come up with another. You know, another yeah. really cool, cool brand there. But, um, but, but it's there. Like I so said, the whole thing. It's like um. It's like a a, a, a theme pattern of what I actually do. It's like a a, 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 a like a, you know trick babies boy raver teenage dirtbag. The next one is going to like a be 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 a man based thing. Okay. You know, but but like I said, but right now it's just um. So the the Boy Raver album just it, it it will come when it comes. Okay. Um so one thing I'd like to talk to you about. So we're kind of up to date. I know there's I know there's a lot of stuff you haven't talked about, I know there's mm. a lot of stories, but we've kind of moved from the inception of you just getting into music kind of up to where we are today. Yeah. Now, I know that you have recently just celebrated twenty five yeah. years of DJing. Yep. Yeah. So one thing that, you know, 
and we'll, we'll, we'll you know we'll get a bit bit geeky now for some DJ side of things. Yeah. What talk to me about just how your journey equipment wise has has flowed has flowed. What are you playing on now? What did you start on? What were the steps in between? How did you feel about it? You know, just just on a geeky equipment. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something now. One significant thing in my whole career is I was the first DJ that I know to go MIDI. Okay. And I got so much abuse for going MIDI. I was the first person to turn up with a MIDI controller okay. and a laptop. Okay. And I, I had it every single week, five nights and you know, five times a night. Where's your where's your decks? I'm playing off four, mate. Yeah. You know, and you know, and I used to be able to do things that were so creative. Yeah. What did you go to MIDI from? Like were you up to playing off CDJs with CDs or were you up to USBs or were you up to laptops with CDJs? Like what did you go to to a MIDI? I've always been interested in in technology, by the way. I um, tell that, yeah. (laughs) Well, I am, but I was forced into MIDI. And I'll okay. tell you why I was forced into MIDI. I did um did a 21st birthday party. I don't really touch functions, but a 21st birthday party for somebody that, that I knew really, really well. And um, we were at the Midland Hotel in Manchester. And I had my CDJ 800s and, and, me, and, and my mixer. Yeah. And um, this girl doing a speech, holds up a glass of champagne, hooks out of her head, Right in front of me doing the speech, spills the whole lot all in my DJ setup. And I was skint at the time. I had 200 quid and I bought a Reloop digital jockey because the, and I bought that at cost price because I was working at Soundbase in Manchester. Okay. And I had no choice but to go MIDI. I, I could not afford any set of decks. Yeah. And I had a laptop and that's how I ended up going MIDI. Um, that, that, that's what hard. software were you using then when you when I was you... using Tractor okay I was on the first incarnation of Tractor yeah where the Reloop Digital Jockey um, Interface Edition that was the first time I went MIDI and that was probably 2010 wow, uh, okay. when yeah, I first came nice. to Dali <laughs> yeah, okay. and beyond that and what do you DJ off now uh, I DJ off at the, at the moment I DJ off um, a Tractor S2 Okay. At most gigs, when okay. when I'm playing out and booked in clubs, it's just whatever's there. So, I play yeah, so, so, so ultimately, if there's if there are CDJs there, you would use the CDJs. No, I'd probably stay MIDI. You, what you like would mid- take? You would take your own. Controller. I, I would actually rather plug my controller in because you can do so much more on them. Yeah. Than you, than you can on a set of decks. I can't understand the logic behind actually playing on CDJs. I'd rather actually play on vinyl than CDJs. And I mean, <laughs> like, you know, like at least if you know. Have you ever? Have you ever gone? Because it's, you know, in some circles, it's, you know, a cool thing like that. And obviously you started on that. Did you, have you ever kind of gone back to vinyl? Like, like having been on the CDJs or being MIDI, have you ever gone back and done vinyl sets? Or? I, I've done loads of vinyl sets. I mean, like, re, you know, upstairs I've got a bag of acetates, yeah. boy raver acetates. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I've not been able to afford them really in the last few years, but I used to press every single track that I made onto uh, an acetate. And it used to cost me uh, 30 quid a time, but I used to press every single... copy? Uh, yeah, you get two sides on that. Yeah. But I used to press every single thing on, onto, a, onto a dub plate. And for people who don't know, how many 
plays could you get out of an acetate? The, the, these are everlasting. Oh, okay. So Actual the... acetates are 20 plays, but okay. um, like everlasting dub plates are everlasting dub plates. Okay. Just like pressing a normal vinyl. Until you scratch it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, I have um, a random question for you, which is, I thought you'd be a good person to ask. There's a new, or there's, a, there's a film out at the sort of time of this um, podcast recording, mm. which I think is called Yesterday. And it's about... Beatles. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's, so the premise is that the whole world's forgotten about the Beatles. And this guy can remember the Beatles, but no one else can. And he um, then becomes famous for playing the Beatles songs. Now, forget about that. That was just a setup to this question. Yeah. And what I've been thinking about, and I just, just there's no way or answer here, I'm just asking your general opinion, is, is a great record... A great record forever regardless of when it's released or does it become a great record in and of the time that it was released and therefore remains great because of that do you understand the question like but do you, when when you say great record do you do you, do you know the first record that comes into my mind okay. and always when whenever anybody says great record to me yeah. do you know what the first record comes into my mind is go on then Papua New Guinea by Future Sound of London. So if Papua, so this is the perfect question, right? Yeah. I agree. Great record. If if no, in this premise of yesterday, if no one has heard Papua New Guinea Future Sound of London mm. today, and you write it and bring it out as Boy Raver, mm. does anyone care about it? No. Same with Inner City Life by the Metalheads. Same with um, yeah. You know, same with bloody Imagine by John Lennon, same with, you know, it's, or does it, you know? But, I don't know the answer. But, I, mean, it's, I, was, I, was, I was interested in your in your opinion. I don't know, you know, I, I probably well, agree. Look, look, I'll tell you what, if you played Papua New Guinea to a lot of 18-year-olds now, they just look at you like, um, you know, you try to teach a, a dog a card trick. Yeah. If you played something that was lyrically perfect... If you played him, say for example, um, "Cloud Busting" by Kate Bush, yeah, they might relate to it. Yeah. If you played him, um, sure, Carl Kennedy just did like a version of that last year or something. I I done one last year, but um, <laughs> you're not mates with Pete Tong, so that's why you played. <laughs> that's why you played Carl's version. If you play the new radicals, you get what you give. Um, they they'll just say, "What's this old shit?" You know, it, it's. But I don't know. It's a funny question, though. Yeah, no, no I, I, I was I was musing it on the M sixty two, so I just thought I'd ask you it. Now um, we're going to wrap up the podcast the same way that we wrap up every single podcast. What I'm going to ask you for is a dream gig, right? What you get to do is you get to choose a venue of your choice. Mm. It can be. A club, it can be a stadium, it can be a festival, it can be whatever you want it to be as the venue, the place that this gig is taking yeah. place. You get to pick three acts, um, so it can be an artist, you know, I mean, it's supposed to be DJs, but people have put bands on there, people have put live, um, you know, dance music acts. So you get to pick where it's happening at, you get to pick three acts, an opening act, an act in the middle and an act at the end I've mm. purposely not said headline there so that you know there's, okay. there's, there's three acts you can put yourself on the lineup in any guise of which you will at any position of which you like or you can just curate this event for your own 
amusement and mm. entertainment and those around you. Um, you've had no warning, I understand that. But how, where, first of all, would you like this place, thing to take place? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, oh wow. by the way, by the way, sorry, I forgot to add one thing. The acts or artists can be dead or alive. This is completely fictional, so yeah. you can, it can be whoever you want. You can put, you know, production in there, whatever the fuck you want. This is your dream gig to either be on or to attend or both if you do play on it. Where's it going to be, Sean Lieber? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Where, where do you even start here? <laughs> right. Um, I'm in no rush here. We can go as deep into this, you know, as you want. My living room with Mrs. Okay, as in, in the house or the club, the living room? No, uh, as in my house. Your actual, your house, your yeah. living room. Great, love it. Nobody else. Okay, amazing. It's me and Lisa. Yeah. Luther Vandross as warm-up. He's going to open, okay. Yeah. yeah. St. Etienne. Okay. Live. In the middle. In the middle. And what, and St. Etienne, how many piece band would they be? Uh, three piece, okay. St. Etienne. Right, okay. And do, do you know the the one DJ that, that I would pick from the whole lot of them? Okay, to close the show. Rob Kane. Tell me about Rob Kane, sir. Rob Kane is my favourite DJ. Okay. By, by a long, long way. Well, um, I feel embarrassed and ashamed not to know about him, so please enlighten me. Rob, and... Rob Kane, absolute Merseyside legend, absolute legend of the bounce scene. Okay. But do, do you know what? There's one DJ that is probably parallel to me. Okay. Some, somebody that is very, very similar in a different area. It's Rob. And do you, do you know, like, you, you're kind of thinking you, you want a DJ to sort of do what you want to see. And Rob always has done that. And I've booked Rob so many times. Okay. Rob would be my DJ. Amazing. So to summarise, Sean Lever, your dream gig is in your living room with Lisa. To open up, we've got Mr. Luther Van Dross. Yes. Live band set from St. Etienne. And to finish, a DJ set from Mr. Rob Kane. Yeah. It's been a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much for speaking Felix, to me. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, man. Uh, that's it. We're done. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are.